Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, we have amazing guests join us to share their stories, their successes, their failures, their lessons, and their life. But more importantly, you're going to have real ideas, mindsets, and actions to apply in your own life. Now, before we dive into today's program, one that I I know you're going to love because I know the guest and I know you're going to love his heart and his story, but you ought to consider checking us out on our primary website. The website's johnolearyinspires.com. Again, johnolearyinspires.com. There are social links there. You can learn about other podcasts. You can check out the show notes from this podcast, watch videos, learn about the book on fire, and all the mission work that we're doing in our community and beyond. It's all available for you. It's all there. Check it out, johnolearyinspires.com. Now, today's guest, this is a gentleman that I have been moved by following and learning from for years. I am a writer today officially, but it took me a while to proudly wear that hat. And maybe the reason why I can proudly wear it today is because I've been learning and embracing it slowly but steadily through my new friend, Jeff Goins. He's a phenomenal writer, a phenomenal teacher, and a remarkable man. You're going to love him. So buckle up, open up your minds and your hearts, your journals, and get ready to bring into your life my friend, Jeff Goins. So Jeff Goins, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John. So good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it is an honor. For those who may not know your name or your brand, your story, give give us a snapshot about who you are today and the work that you're doing. Sure. Well, um, I'm a writer, as you mentioned. I'm the best-selling author of five books, including Real Artists Don't Starve, which is the newest book, and The Art of Work. And um, uh, that's one hat that I wear. The other hat that I wear is I'm a teacher. And so for the past uh, six years, I've been teaching online courses for writers and creatives, helping them succeed using uh, social media, blogging, and all of the technology tools today that allow you to uh, reach a lot more people uh, with your message. And uh, that's that's what I do today. Um, before that, I was a nonprofit marketing director. Before that, I was a traveling musician and I like what Anne Lamott says about, you know, whatever age you're at in life, I'm 34 right now. And you know, we often look back and go, oh, I wish I was 18 or this or that. And she says, I am all the ages I've ever been. And so I've done a bunch of different things, you know. I've always been creative my whole life, and I love inspiring other people to tap into their creative and find a way to share that with the world in a practical way. We're going to come into that full tilt here in a moment. But before we talk about creatives and taking the next step forward and what it means for us in our businesses and lives, Jeff, tell us a little bit about your 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 background, man. Where were you born? What was life like for you growing up? So I was born in the suburbs of Chicago. And then when I was about 10, we moved a little further out west uh, near DeKalb, Illinois, uh, which is famous for all of its corn. Yes. <laughs> and I grew, I grew up in a pretty small town of about 1,100 people, small farming community, and uh, uh, didn't have a lot of friends, wasn't super popular. Uh, always was creative, as I said, when I was um, 
seven, eight years old, I started drawing cartoons of Garfield the cat. Uh, when I was uh, a teenager, my dad, who played guitar, taught me music. I started playing music with some friends, started mm-hmm. a band. We called it decaf. <laughs> it was two electric guitars and an electric bass and no drums. And so we thought, like, that's what decaffeinated music was. No, man, that sounds highly caffeinated to me, (laughs) especially your age Uh, group. Yeah, we were were not good. Uh, And we wrote a lot of bad original songs and had a lot of fun doing that. I've just always loved expressing myself creatively and and doing it for an audience, doing it, um, you know, for a group of people. And seeing how it affects them. And so around that time, I got into stage acting. I acted in a bunch of plays. Um, I went away to college, you know, at, at 18 years old and went to a small private liberal, liberal arts school in uh, Illinois called Illinois College, first mm-hmm. school in Illinois, first university in Illinois. And um, I, there, my life really kind of took a, a different turn. I did not grow up going to church and became a Christian in college through a pretty radical uh, faith conversion experience where, um, you know, I think a lot of things could happen to me in my life to allow me to doubt a lot of things. I can't imagine an experience that would, uh, lead me to doubt that, um, that experience of, Hmm. of really encountering God in a personal, uh, almost physical way. It was, um, yeah, it changed my life forever. Well, and And, and before we step forward, man, like, the cool thing about our podcast and our listeners is that we're not afraid to actually talk about really uncomfortable stuff like faith yeah. or politics or yeah. racism right. or poverty or divorce yeah. or bankruptcy or cancer, like whatever it is. Mm. Uh, we try to hold everything with our hands open. And so yeah. I, I've had some phenomenal guests who believe things very differently than I believe that I've learned a great deal from. And so I'm, I'm excited to hear just a tiny bit, if you don't mind. Tell yeah. us about the faith conversion, man. What What happened? So in college, um, I joined an, another band, and I think my first week as a college freshman, uh, I, I met this guy who was a sophomore, and he invited me to come over. He's like, oh, you play guitar. I play guitar. Come on over, and we'll jam. And I went over uh, to his dorm room, and we played guitar together. And he's like, hey, man, you should join our band. And I was like, that's cool. I like being in bands. Uh, and he's like, we have a drummer. And I'm like, you have a drummer? I've never played <laughs> right. a band with a drummer. And he goes, yeah, come on. We practice every week at the chapel. And I'm like, that's a weird place to play music, but whatever. Keep in mind, we went to church like Christmas and Easter and and once in a while. My mom was raised nominal Catholic. My dad was raised Southern Baptist. And neither of them, you know, had real strong um, religious practices or or faith. And Mm -hmm. we thought like, you know, it's good to believe in God. You know, Christian is kind of, you know, synonymous with American but like I grew up with this belief that you don't want to take that too far. You don't want to be a Jesus freak. These are good ideas, but everybody understands that like you don't really wholeheartedly follow this. And so, and to be fair, all of the Christians, like the evangelical Jesus freaks, as my parents called them, that we knew while I was growing up were basically hypocrites and liars. Yes. Yes. And so I was just like, okay, whatever. I'm not like, it's fine, but I'm not all into this thing. And so I started playing with this band, and I was, and I realized, oh, this is a praise band, <laughs> you know. And they played every uh, chapel service at yes. school. It wasn't a Christian school, but they had a chapel service. And so I basically become a part of this praise band, and I'm not a believer at the time. <laughs> That's awesome. 
And you know what was interesting about this, John, was I was immersed in a community for the first time hmm. of people who lived the way they believed. Like they actually did the things that they said they believed. I'd never seen that before, not just in faith circles, like period. Most people I knew, like they said, oh, these are some good things, but nobody really does that. Now, these people weren't perfect, but if they like made a mistake, they owned it. They asked for forgiveness. You know, if, if um, they were struggling with something, they were honest about it. And this was interesting to me. Yeah. I had never really seen that. I certainly hadn't seen that in a church. And it's very attractive to me. And so freshman year of college, I did two things. One, I joined a praise and worship band uh, with this Christian fellowship group in my small college of, you know, about a thousand people. Uh, and the other thing I did was I joined a fraternity. Hmm. And uh, one weekend I was getting drunk and wasted and trying to hook up with girls. And then the next weekend I was playing back-to-back worship services. Yes. And I, it, it was a confusing experience, and I felt being pulled in two very different directions. And, and you know, it, it was miserable, frankly. It would have been better just to do one or the other. Yeah. And, and so by the end of my freshman year, I was very confused. I knew that there was something more that I was missing in my life. I didn't know what that was, to be honest. In high school, I'd had some friends bring me to, like, Christian worship services, had a friend who went to a Pentecostal church and, and, you know, like pray the prayer, get on your knees, do jumping jacks, do whatever. Like, I felt like I tried to do all those things to fill this void in my life. I wasn't resistant to it, but it felt like I kept, like I was trying to get to God, uh, frankly speaking. And it's just never stuck. You know, I, I just kind of always went back to who I was before and I was disillusioned with the process. Anyway, at the end of this year, I had really seen what a life of belief and faith um, from a sincere uh, motivation looked like. And, and I'd also partied harder than I ever had before and been exposed to a lot of you know dark and ugly things too. And so that summer, I went home and I worked at a state park. And for seven hours a day, I worked second shift from uh, 4 p.m. to midnight. Mm. And uh, I would get there at four, and then the groundskeepers that were taking care of the park, the park rangers, all those people, they would give me a list of things to do, and then they would leave at five, and I would have uh, the rest of the evening by myself to do this list of chores and then to close the park, and that was my job. And so I had a lot of time alone in nature, and I had this little um, Gideon's New Testament uh, in my back pocket, uh, like one of those little things that you get like for free yes. uh, from the Gideons. And and it had the Psalms in there too. And I read the Psalms every single day. And um, just it was just this refreshing spiritual time. And long story short, uh, or, you know, mid, mid-length story a little bit longer, I um, uh, one, one night went out and partied with my friends, got really drunk, did a bunch of stupid things that I couldn't remember. And the next day I was driving home and I was sitting uh, at a, the train tracks watching this train go by. And it was this surreal out-of-body moment for me where I realized I'm like watching my life go by mm. and I'm not even really in control of it anymore. And so I just started to pray and I started to say sorry for the bad things that I'd done uh, that weekend, uh, which was normal for me to do. But then as I started to pray, more things came out, even things that I didn't even think were that bad. And I started to cry, and then I started to weep, and then I started to like really, really ugly cry, like the kind of crying where your stomach muscles are yes. are just so tense. It's a good workout. 
And I mean, just crying really, really hard. And I'm driving home at this point, uh, just confessing sins that I didn't even really think were sins. And there's this moment where I realize that depravity is not just understanding how bad you were or some of the bad things that you did. Depravity is an appreciation of how bad of, of a person you could become. And I realized in that moment after doing some stuff that I never thought I would have done, you know, for, like trying to make out with this girl and basically forcing myself on her. And then I just passed out. I, I was like, I, I can be a really bad guy. And I didn't even think that I could be that way, but I need something better than me. That is more good than I could ever be to guide me. Um, mm-hmm. And so I started crying and you know, all this stuff. And then there's just this moment where I stopped and I, I felt this physical sensation. My body started tingling and I started going from uncontrollable crying to uncontrollable laughter and just praising God and saying, I love God and, and just doing all these things without embarrassment or fear of judgment, not really knowing what was happening to me. And then I pulled into my driveway <laughs> and yeah, I was, I was never the same after that. It was a really Could, um, Jeff, bizarre pe- and incredible experience. Could people tell you were different? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, here's the thing, like, so for me, like there, there was this attraction to like going to parties and drinking and trying to hook up with girls um, because that made me feel important and loved. And, and so before I would typically like make a promise and like, I'm not going to do this. And I would try to be moral. And then I would go back to that stuff. Cause I like, it felt good. And, and so a month after this happened, I was like, okay, this is, this is going to stick this time. And it's really different. And I went to a party and I said, okay, but I'm not going to drink. You know, it was a 4th of July party with a bunch of college kids, you know, but I'm not going to drink. My friend's like, okay, whatever. And the first person came by, so I didn't have a beer. And they said, hey, do you want a beer? I said, no, I'm good. Next person, hey, do you want a beer? No. Hey, do you want a beer? Third time, I go, all right, fine. And, and I take a sip of this beer, and I've been drinking, you know, as a teenager, you know, since maybe 13 years old. And I never didn't like the taste of beer. And I took a sip of it, and it tasted awful. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, it's been a month since I've had a drink, so whatever. I'll take it. You know, I took another sip, and it tasted like urine. And I was like, okay. And I pushed the can away and I said, all right, God message received. And, um, yeah, uh, people could tell I was different, but as I mentioned before, I felt like for a, you know, first 20 years of my life or whatever, I like, I was doing things to try to reach God. And I felt like this was God reaching down to me. And I, I, I was never the same after that. And yeah, people could tell I was different. Some people didn't like it. Um, but, um, yeah, it was an undeniable experience that changed my life forever man i'm you know and and by the way just my friends listening at home or while you're driving or working out jeff and i are buddies we've met each other several times and uh before the podcast we just decided we're gonna we're gonna talk about life and wherever it goes it goes we've never talked collectively about our faith or that experience that jeff had and uh i want to acknowledge that because this wasn't a setup and I think right. it's an, a critical part of your life. And that's what this podcast is. It's it's not for us yeah. to judge it. Agreed. It's just to be open about it and how this experience changed you, man. So I, I really appreciate you sharing all that. Because hmm. it's, it's kind of, it's going to direct what happens in, in the life and in the next steps to come. So as yeah. you continue through college, what, what was your major, Jeff? I had a double major in Spanish and religion. I actually declared a major in religion before I became a Christian. It was just something I was fascinated 
yeah. uh, with. And again, this wasn't a Christian college, so it was a um, we studied all religions. And and then having a span, it was a Spanish minor, and it became a Spanish major when I went to Spain for a study abroad program. It was on that trip that I fell in love with travel and the world, and I ended up meeting some missionaries in Spain. And I realized, wait, like I can speak Spanish and travel and like this could be a, and, and do ministry and this could be a, yes. like a job, you know, a real job. And so I, I started to get really passionate about missions and decided I was going to be a missionary. And um, senior year, I heard a bunch about like what's called the 1040 window and all these different people in the world that, you know, hadn't heard about Jesus and hadn't, you know, had an experience that had changed my life. And so I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to go help people and do ministry and serve in the world and it'll be lots of fun. And, um, the last two weeks of, um, uh, college, I saw this band play at a, um, at our, at our college and they were this like Christian rock band basically. And they said, Hey, uh, we're part of this organization. And every year we send out a new team of musicians, uh, and they travel all, all around the world playing music. Uh, if you would like to apply to be a part of this, anybody, if there's any musicians in the crowd, just come and see us after the show and we'll, you know, have an audition for you. And so I went and I auditioned and they accepted me and I signed up with this organization called CTI Music Ministries. And for the next year, I traveled all across North America, spent a month in Taiwan, and we played almost daily at churches, schools, and prisons. And we played everything from like contemporary Christian music to gospel uh, music and hymns to like, you know, contemporary uh, mm. modern rock music. And yeah, I was a professional musician for a year and it was uh, a lot of fun. And then I ended up, I quit the band and did, then I moved. Did you play any covers kind of, of decaffeinated? <laughs> Decaf. Decaf. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we didn't play any of that. A lot of those songs had bad words in them. So it was not the appropriate no, uh, I hear you. to do that. <laughs> we don't want to cause yeah. riots where we're playing. What, looking yeah. back on it, what, what what was the best part of, you know, you mentioned I fell in love with travel. So as you sum up the plane and the ministry and the travel and just this global experience that you only truly experience once you have a passport in hand and you're somewhere you've never been before. Looking back on it, what, what was the best part of all of that? Um. I think before I can answer the best part, I have to say the worst part, which is the worst Perfect. part of travel is going to some place amazing, you know, a wonder of the world, a mountaintop, and being all alone. Hmm. Uh, and part of that year of travel um, uh, with the band was, you know, I was with friends and, and, and whatnot, but um, I mentioned two weeks before I graduated, I saw this band and we signed up to be a part of this thing. And around that same time, um, I met this girl and I we went on a date two weeks before I left for a year and um, things took off quickly and we started writing letters and we basically dated for our first year of our relationship while I was on the road writing letters to each other um, several times a week and like not talking on the phone very much because I didn't have a cell phone at the time. This was a while ago. And uh, it was a really incredible year, but it also um, was hard because um, I, you know, she, she wasn't there with me and I wanted her to be. And I realized it's not enough to live an adventure. You know, you need to have a companion with you. And, and so the best part about all those experiences, all of them were the people involved. You know, I think of 
when I was in Spain, I mean, my favorite moments were not like the big moments where we like, you know, saw this 1200 year old castle or, you know, went, went to this amazing thing. It was like, man, you know, I loved the, the woman whose name was lowly, uh, whose house I stayed in for five months for a semester. And, uh, you know, I remember her getting up before we woke up every morning, walking, you know, two blocks away to get fresh baked bread and bring it back to us for breakfast. She did this every single morning. I mean, I'll never forget, you know, just how much love that woman had. And, you know, when I was in Rome, the best part was not walking through the Vatican. That was cool. Uh, the best part was, you know, playing uh, with my my travel companion, one of my best friends, we played Brown Eyed Girl in the middle of this square in downtown Rome, and all these people, you know, came and and watched us play this this live performance. Just you know, that's totally awesome. spontaneous. Yeah, the moments with people are the best best ones. Help me understand after this year, what what, what becomes of your life looking forward? So I moved to Nashville uh, after I quit the band, which is again the opposite direction these things typically happen in. Uh, I moved here, uh, which is where I, I live today, to chase this girl who – she lived in Illinois at the time as well. She wanted to get involved in the music industry. She moved here, got a job with a record label, and I moved here to be near her. We ended up getting married, and I worked a part-time job sleeping on friends' couches uh, for about seven months, and then uh, we got engaged. I started working for this nonprofit called Adventures and Missions. This was a Christian mission organization. And then we got married, and uh, I became the marketing director of this organization. I worked there for seven years, and the last two years of that time, this is most of my 20s, I just felt like I had this itch I wanted to write. I, as a marketing director, I was working for this ministry. It was a good cause, a great thing, but I felt like there were things that I wanted to say. I felt like there was a calling on my life that was bigger than than what I was doing. And there was some guilt associated with that. I was like, why isn't this enough? Uh, And then I ended up writing. I started writing. I started a blog. That blog took off, Mm. um, started publishing books. And um, and, in about two years, more than replaced my income. My my wife and I had just had a child. I replaced her income. She could stay home, which is something she wanted to do for a season. And yeah, it kind of changed everything. And I went to my boss one day uh, and I said, hey, I think it's time for me to move on. And he said, "Oh yeah, I know. I've been I've been waiting for this talk. It's about time." Yes. And I said, "Ah, oh, just I'm I'm worried that I'm going to disappoint you because I was his protege. He was a mentor. It was a good, you know, employment relationship. I realized that's not the case for everybody, but mm-hmm. I was I was scared." And he said, "I'm not disappointed. I'm I'm proud. It's time for you to go do this." And uh, I've been doing it ever since, writing um, for a living. Jeff, for me, <clears throat> for me, and I think for many professionals who go off on their own in the creative world, whether it's music, writing, singing, whatever it may be. I, I I would tell my friends that I was doing almost anything other than speaking when they would ask me for years and years and years during my speaking career. I was I was in construction or I was doing this or that because I, I, I was embarrassed by it in some regards. And, and then I finally learned to embrace that reality. I, I'm a professional speaker. Then I started writing and it took me forever to say, gosh, I'm a writer. Did, did it take you a while to embrace the fact that, dude, indeed, you are a writer? You're a writer. Yep, absolutely. And I think this is a thing. I mean, I appreciate you sharing that about speakers. Uh, it's definitely a case with writers. And uh, I think that some of our greatest gifts, we are the last people to recognize those. And, and, and sometimes we're just 
afraid to talk about it. And for me, um, you know, kind of going back to, you know, five years into working at this nonprofit, every year I would get a raise and I'd get a little bit more responsibility. I realized at like the age of 27, like, I'm probably not going to screw this up. Like I, if I want to do this for the next 15 years, I can. And so I just imagined my life 10, 15 years in the future. I thought, man, if I'm still doing what I'm doing now, I'm going to feel like I've settled. I'm probably going to be moving towards a midlife crisis. Uh, not because I'm doing anything wrong or I'm doing something that I hate, but because I'm just doing enough. And mm-hmm. I think the worst place for us to be in the world is comfortable. Uh, because if your job sucks or your current situation is unbearable, that's actually a good place to be because you know something has to change. And if you want big things out of your life, you want to live an inspired life and you're comfortable, that's the scariest place to be because there's nothing forcing you out of that place. And that's where I was. And I thought, I am uncomfortable with this comfort. And so I joined, actually joined a co- coaching group. I started reading books. I would go to conferences. I, I read a book at that time called Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer. And in that book, Palmer says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. <laughs> and I, and as I began to listen to my life, I realized there was this creative thread, this theme woven throughout all of the most significant moments of my life, which you know many of which I just shared with you. And it was in a coaching group one day where one of the other students in this year-long coaching group that I was a part of, he looked at me. And he said, what's your dream? And I said, I don't know. I don't think I have one of those. (laughs) And he just looked at me and he said, really? Because I would have thought you would have said writer. just seems so obvious to me. And again, remember, sometimes we're the last people to recognize our greatest gifts or we're just afraid to recognize them. And I said, yeah, you know, I I guess I'd like to be a writer someday. But that'll probably never happen. And he just looked at me again and he said, Jeff you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And I don't know if you ever had an, ex- an experience like this that just kind of like keeps happening over and over again. Like you keep getting the same advice over and over again, yes. or you hear one person talk about it. You go to church, you go somewhere else. It just keeps coming up and you go, okay, fine. Yes, fine. yes, yes. I'll do it. And that's what this was for me. It was like the final domino in a series of dominoes where I felt like God was telling me, this is who you are. This is what I want you to do. A few months before that, I was at a conference about how to find your dream of all things, right? And uh, there was a point where a speaker said, who here feels like they don't have a dream? And about half the room's hands went up, including mine. And I looked around, I was like, oh, that's great. I don't feel alone anymore. It's okay to not know what your dream is. And he said, yeah, I think you're lying. I think you do know what your dream is. You're just afraid to admit it. And I want you to write down in your notebook right now the first thing that comes to mind. And I opened up my my notebook and I wrote, writer. Mm. And that night I brought my notebook home to my wife and I said, look at this. I paid $200 to go to this conference. Look what I found out. I'm supposed to be a writer. I mean, that's totally sincere. Like, look at this. I discovered it. I found the thing. She said, are you kidding me? I've been telling you that for five years. Yes. Yeah. So it just was like, it was all these things adding up. And again, as Parker Palmer says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. As I began to listen to my life, it seemed obvious to me that writer was an important part of who I was. Well, Jeff, it's one thing to say, hey, guys, guess what? I'm a writer. 
you know, and high five right. everybody as they turn their back and run the other direction. How do you go from, in this case, writing, but singing, um, playing in a band, doing anything creatively, whatever it may be, starting your own business? How do you go from saying, this is who I am, to actually doing it and then actually somehow being paid for it? Yeah, I do think that saying it is a part of it. I realize that we live in this culture where, you know, uh, there's a lot of people faking it who aren't making it, right? You know, they're talking about it without doing it. Uh, But as it sounds like was the case for you, John, and it's certainly true for me that saying it, owning it was an, an important first step. So I do think that the first step is to believe that you are this thing that you want to be. Mm. And, and so for me, those words, you are a writer, you just need to write. Those words were so powerful that I started writing the next day. And obviously, like I was writing in fits and starts, and I had a blog, but I, I wasn't taking it seriously. And I thought like there was like a writer with a capital W, like it was a title, and I hadn't earned that yet. I didn't have the certificate or the degree or whatever. And so when I started calling myself a writer, I was like, well, what do writers do? I think I probably like get up every day and write, you know, like for like, that's what professionals do. So I just started acting as if that were true. Mm. And so I, I think of it like this. First, you have to believe. Then immediately following that, you have to behave like it's true. And then finally, you do become it. And so, yeah, I mean, the next day I started calling myself a writer. I started putting it on business cards. I, I own the whole thing and I started acting like it. And I don't think there's a difference between a, an amateur who's doing the work uh, of slowly getting better and becoming you know, more and more professional than somebody who's a true pro. Like, what is the difference? If they're both doing it, yes. they're both professionals. They're just at different levels. And that's how I started thinking, like, I'm not better than I think I am or better than somebody that's been doing this for 10 years. I'm a beginner, but I'm in this. I'm doing it. I am a writer. I'm not aspiring. I'm not a wannabe. I'm going to fully believe this. I'm going to behave as if it's true. And then eventually I think people are going to acknowledge that as well. And so believe, behave, become. And what I tell creatives of all kinds, and uh, I use that term pretty loosely, you know, um, you can be a baker and be an artist as far as I'm concerned. Like we all have creative gifts to share with the world. Uh, It's just a question of whether or not we believe that we can thrive from these gifts. And so I, I encourage people, look, here's the deal. Like, if you don't take yourself seriously first, yeah. nobody else will. Well, and I, I will add this. Whether you you mentioned baking, uh, speaking, whatever whatever the job title is, but this is true in your health, in your spiritual yep. journey, whatever wherever that may be taking you. It's true in your finances. It's true in your marriage. It's true in the way you you rear your children, or you love your parents, or you treat your neighbors. I'm going to walk you through the three steps Jeff just shared because I think it works in writing. And I'm, I know it works in your personal walk. So here we go again. Believe. You know, like this is huge. Believe that you're an awesome spouse. Believe that it is possible to have a great marriage, great partnership, be a great parent, be a great leader. Live an inspired life. Believe it. Secondly, behave like it is so. And then thirdly, it becomes so. Like the, the relationship changes. The work changes. What you're doing changes. And the results of all this changes. Jeff, it's a, it's a simple formula that I think works, yeah. man. So that, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and, and just to kind of close on that, um, I sometimes work with coaching clients and even just friends, and we'll be talking about them growing their business or finishing that book or doing something that they've nev- never thought they'd, they'd do. And I tell them, if you think you can't, you won't. And, and I think it's important to 
like really figure out like do you think you could do this and it doesn't mean that you have to be 100% confident in your abilities because when we all start out we're a little bit insecure that's okay like that can be humility uh, but do you really think that you can do this can you see yourself being this kind of person that you want to be if you can imagine that then I think you can become it and if you can't um, I, I'm not sure that you can. It really, the mind is a powerful thing. You mentioned the, the worst part of traveling was going to the top of the mountaintop all by yourself. <laughs> and then you also yeah. mentioned even before that how you thought being in community is so important. So like th- these two certainly seem to be playing together for you, not only looking backward, but looking forward and also where you are today. You, you have a thriving community. Not only you and your wife and your family, your neighbors, that that thing, mm-hmm. but your your work mm-hmm. community. Talk about your work community. Yeah, I think every story of success is really a story of community. You know, the whole idea of the self-made man or woman, it's a myth. Uh, we're all products of our environment, uh, and we're also are products of the people that have influenced and invested in us, um, good or bad, right? And um, And this is why you see, you know, uh, urban areas where there's a lot of crime produces a lot of criminals, right? Like we, we catch these, a lot yes. of these habits. And it's also why you see, you know, wealthy or creative communities become even wealthier and even more creative. Um, I realized several years ago um, when I was living in Nashville, is you know, more creative community than, than some places, more creative than the place that I'd come from. And here I was sitting on the couch going, man, I wish I could, be a writer, you know, and look at all those people who are luckier than me. And I I just, I saw the world as an unfair place. And I'm I'm not saying that it's fair, but here I'm sitting on the couch looking at, you know, all these people online who had grown these large followings and had become published authors, full-time speakers. And these are things that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I was missing out and, and they had something that I didn't have. And one day I remember like looking at like Facebook or Instagram or something and it just dawned on me like the top 10 people that I was following online, they lived in Nashville uh, and they were all friends with each other. And I was like, oh, they're helping each other. They're encouraging each other. You know, the the whole um, rising tide raises all ships. Like that's what's happening here. And so I just said, well, can I be a part of that or can I create something like that? I bet I can. And and so I talk about this in the new book, basically the idea that every city has a scene. Some are, some are obviously different than others, but there's, there's always a local scene. There's some place with a people that can help you succeed faster. And so I think first you have to find a scene and sometimes you have to move uh, across the country to do this. More often than not, the first step is to move across the room. I realized <laughs> I was in a city where I thought, I have no opportunity. And then I realized, wait, I know that coffee shop. What if I went there tomorrow and just hung out, maybe bumped into somebody? What if I just started showing up? And, and this is something that I've observed from studying uh, the habits and, lo- and lives of successful creative people. There's always a scene that they're a part of. Uh, scenes beget uh, networks. These are loose connections with people. Uh, and then networks tend to lead to collaborations. Those are those are tighter knit groups of people. So for me, it began with acknowledging the opportunity in the place. Uh, and again, those opportunities vary depending on the place that you're in. But there is an opportunity where you are to thrive in the work that you're doing by simply finding other like-minded people. Go where those people hang out. And if they're not hanging out, 
you either have to join the scene or create it. And there's lots of examples of people doing both. Uh, secondly, start connecting with those people and connect those people with each other. That's a network. I'm not a fan of networking, which no. is often people just going to events and passing out business cards. Don't network, build a network, right? And then lastly, um, uh, create collaborations. And a collaboration uh, is like a mastermind group. And, and, you know, some, some smaller group of people that are invested in each other's lives that get together on a regular basis. It's going to happen online. It can happen in person. Um, you know, do whatever works for you. Uh, but for me, it went from connecting with people locally, uh, meeting friends, um, acquiring mentors who were, you know, heroes of mine, and then ultimately culminated in finding about a, uh, 11 other uh, men who were very interested in growing in a lot of the ways that I wanted to grow spiritually, professionally, uh, personally. And then we committed to walking through life together. And we've been meet. I just met with them this, this week. Yeah. Uh, we meet every week. We've been doing it for five years. And I, I can say without any sort of exaggeration that 95% of whatever success I've experienced is either a direct or indirect result of being a part of a group like that. So I'm, I'm going to weigh in just a little bit. I have a, a neighbor, a dear friend, Tim, I know you're listening, who always wanted to find guys to ride bikes with. You know, this is an old guy. He's got kids <laughs> himself, but no, no one it. rides bikes, man. They just don't do it anymore. Right. So he went up right. to a bike shop. And uh, on Saturday morning, 7.30, he met four random dudes. Timmy rides his bike now with these dudes week after week after week. It turns out he's not the only guy who likes to ride a bike on a Saturday morning. I have another group of guys. They wanted to grow spiritually, so they started hanging out. And and now all these guys are collaborating. They're hanging out. They're growing. They're challenging each other to grow and expand their spiritual boundaries and to attract like-minded fellows and ladies in. We have friends who started their own marriage groups because they wanted to have a better marriage. Theirs was falling apart. They wondered if, I wonder if anyone else struggles in marriage. I I can't imagine they do, but who knows? We'll throw it out there. Turns out that everybody is. They find nine (laughs) couples. They've been meeting monthly now for three years, and they all have better relationships with their spouses and now their neighbors because of it. So what I'm hearing from you, Jeff, yeah, it works with creatives. It works with writers. It works in Nashville. But more than that, move across the room. You don't have to buy a right. ticket necessarily to Nashville and find the 12 of us at a coffee shop. She's probably next to you in the place where you're okay. you're nursing or you're teaching or you're serving. She's already there. Reach out to her. Yep. Instead of um, <laughs> uh, telling people what you think, invite them in and learn more about them and then expand the network from that point. Absolutely. So, you know, tell us just a little bit more where we can learn about the work specifically that you're doing, whether it's books that you want to celebrate or uh, your own online community. Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate you asking about that. Uh, Yeah, I've written five books. They're all on Amazon. Um, The best place to find me is at my website, and then there's links to, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Um, But just go to goinswriter.com, G-O-I-N-S, writer.com. If you're a writer or a creative or an aspiring person who wants to share your creative work with the world, those are things that I talk about and teach about on my website. Um, And then the the last two books I think are both, you know, maybe interesting, you know, for your audience. Real Artists Don't Starve is uh, all about making a living off of your creative work. And and then the book before that is The Art of Work, which is about uh, finding your passion and purpose uh, in life, both those books were bestsellers, and people seem to like them. So those are two books you could 
check out. Well, a, a lot of us artists and a lot of us uh, fledgling missionaries or business owners om- used to kind of almost yeah. take pride in doing so without profit. And, and there's another right. Nashville man, a guy named Dave Ramsey, that I would imagine you and many <laughs> others may have heard of. Sure. Ramsey doesn't yeah. apologize for earning a, a paycheck and sometimes a massive right. paycheck for touching people's <laughs> lives with, with his art. Yeah. And it's all art. It, it, it's right. all art, man. So uh, I, I would encourage folks to check out your work. I do. I am a follower. You have taught me, and now we're friends. I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. For those who are sitting back right now, Jeff, listening to you and I hang out and, and share business and life ideas, and they're sitting back thinking, dude, uh, I'm either comfortable or I'm uncomfortable, and I have no dream. What about me, Jeff? So for those who are either comfortable or completely uncomfortable— but either way, they don't have a, a big dream for tomorrow. What, what advice would you share? I once worked with somebody, and every time we would finish a project, I would immediately go, okay, let's do this better and this better, and let's change this and let's do that. And um, I, have a, I have a team now that I do this with, and I kind of drive them crazy. And um, the, I remember having a conversation with this coworker one time, and, you know, we were, I don't know, through the third iteration of this project and, and he was helping me produce it. And um, I said, okay, uh, all right, well, now that, 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 that's done, let's, let's talk about what we can do better here, here, and here. And what about that? And he just said, Jeff, I don't, I don't understand. Like, people are liking this. It's really good. You're really talented. What's wrong with it? Mm. I said, What? Well, nothing's wrong with it. I mean, it could just be better. And he's like, "Oh," he said, "Well, I don't, I don't really think that way. Like, if it's if it's good, it's good." So I guess I should begin by answering this question with a caveat. I don't know what that's like. I, I, I'm not, I'm not discontent. I'm not frustrated. I just have this belief that things can always be better. And um, it turns out. And, and we're terrible at remembering this, but human beings do not like achieving things, right? Like we don't want to actually achieve goals. We don't want to get to the mountaintop. We want to climb. We're made to move. And so uh, on one hand, stasis is not a very happy place to be, staying stuck in the same old rut. That's not happy. That's miserable. On the other hand, achieving something and then trying to like – just stay there, you know, uh, it doesn't matter, like a certain amount of money, uh, the perfect amount of date nights with your spouse. Like we have in our mind, like if this thing happened, if I acquired this position, this material good, then I would be okay. It's just not true. We want progress. We want to steadily be moving in the right direction, uh, you know, towards a worthy goal, as one author puts it. Um, Earl Nightingale, you know, this is success is the gradual realization of a worthy goal. Um, so I, I think my encouragement is wherever you you're at, there's something more, there's a level deeper in the spiritual search that you're, you're on. Uh, there's, there's more abundance that you could acquire, not for the sake of yourself necessarily. Uh, I remember having a very hard conversation with a mentor and friend of mine and somebody you might be familiar with. Uh, Dan Miller, where I like, got to this point where I was making more money than I ever expected to make. And I said, I think I'm good. I think I'm going to stop. He goes, what a selfish thing to do. <laughs> I said, well, excuse me. Uh, I said, I have more money than I know what to do with. He goes, so if you're good at making money, why would you stop? 
Maybe maybe this is a, a skill, a talent that God's given you. Why would you not use it? So, well, because I don't I don't need it anymore. He says, look, you should make it, if God's given you a talent, you should use it. You should make as much money as you possibly can. He said, nobody ever told you you had to keep it. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And I started getting motivated about, wow, we can make more money and and do building projects in yes. Africa as we've done and. And so I just think there's there's always more. There's a there's there's important work that you have to share with the world. Um, if it's not happening, um, then it's probably a result of an agreement that you've made, a belief that you have. It's more than circumstance. And I I'm not a fan of just like blaming or shaming people, um, but I have found that all of the big breakthroughs in my life were a result of me being confident in what I thought I could do and all the major failures from relationships to business failures and and all things in between have typically been a result of a lack of confidence, my not believing in myself, not thinking I could do it. So kind of the way we started this conversation, I think it begins and ends with belief. On our Live Inspired channel and on this Live Inspired podcast, all of our guests who have preceded you have been asked seven questions, Jeff. They uh, yes. they tie all the conversations together. So I want to walk you through, since you shared your belief and you shared your journey, what we call the Live Inspired Seven. So so you'll, you'll need to kind of buckle up. It's a dangerous path, but uh, others have walked to it. I know you can make it through this climb as we progress forward in your journey. Jeff Goins, what is the best book you've ever read? I, I mean, I think – I mentioned Parker Palmer earlier. He wrote a book. Uh, he wrote a book called um, Let Your Life Speak. That's one of the best books I've read. The best book I've, I've read was a book he wrote after that called A Hidden Wholeness. Parker Palmer is an activist. Uh, he's also a Quaker and he's a poet. <laughs> and he writes like the most beautiful personal development books I've, I've ever read. Um, a Hidden Wholeness is a book about integrity. And when I got everything that I ever thought I wanted and it didn't make me happy, I read that book and understood why. Hmm. Uh, there are a lot of people dancing toward uh, our, their bookstores and, web, and websites right now to learn a little bit more about Parker <laughs> Palmer. I'm one of them. I can't wait to learn more. Tomorrow- He's amazing. You will love it. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you, Jeff Goins, with millions and millions of dollars. What would you do with that newfound wealth? I would take some of it and uh, pay off my house. (laughs) Uh, And then I would take the rest of it and um, I'd create... Uh, we actually have this already, but I would basically uh, put it in uh, a charitable endowment fund that we have uh, that I would eventually leave to my kids, um, which is basically a fund that can only be dispersed to nonprofits and charities. And the reason for that is not because like, I'm trying to win humility points. Uh, I have made a bunch of money and not known what to do with it, and it and not the money, the lack of motivation made me miserable because yes. I didn't have anything to work for. And so I know that too much of a good thing all at once, I don't know what to do with. Like I have a good business. I have a great career. Uh, I'm gradually realizing the financial goals that I have for myself and my family. 
And I think it is a grace that it hasn't happened overnight. At the same time, like I don't want to just like turn the money away. And I think it's a, I have a friend who's a financial advisor. He told me, man, I didn't need, like I, I was financially independent years ago. He says, so now I take almost all the money that I make. I put it in this endowment fund for my kids because I realized I could give them one of two inheritances. One, a bunch of wealth that they haven't spent time acquiring and knowing how to manage. Mm. Or two, I could give them uh, the gift of being charitable to other people. And he said, I, I liked the potential fruit of that in my kids' lives much more than giving them a bunch of money that they didn't earn. Beautiful answer. Tomorrow, uh, you, your house, you, it catches fire, Jeff. Sadly, and all living things and all living people are out. You have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. You have to go. So what's the one item you would go in and grab? I would say my laptop, but like all that stuff's backed up. So I'm like, ah, that's fine. It's in the cloud. I can get it back. <laughs> um, I'd, uh, I'd run in and get this painting that my grandfather, who was an artist, he died when I was about 15, 16 years old. Mm. Um, he's the person, he's the one relative that I am most like. <laughs> he was a musician. He was a writer. Um, he, uh, he is the person that I think would be proudest of the things that I've done because of our similarities. And he never got to see me accomplish any of these things, like travel as a professional musician, uh, publish multiple books, do things that he wanted to do but never got to do. And I have a painting that he did of me. It's an oil painting uh, where I'm like uh, seven years old reading a book. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I got that after he died. And I would, um, I mean, there's no way to replace that. Jeff, uh, would, you, would you be willing to share that with me and I could put it on our website? The picture? Yeah, not the painting. I, yeah, I won't sure. take the painting out of your yeah, yeah, living yeah. room, but maybe a I'm picture of the painting. painting. <laughs> I just think it. Yeah, for, I'll take a picture. For me, being yeah. you know having you on the show, I think it makes sense for you to send me up the entire right. painting. Just trust me, I'll I'll find a great spot yeah. for it. No, but my friends, listening, we we will get a picture of that so we can celebrate yeah. Grandpa and uh, this little boy yeah. reading something that eventually he's going to become an expert in himself. Very cool. <laughs> if if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be having that long conversation with? I, I mean, I just have a ton of respect for C.S. Lewis. Hmm. He wrote, he wrote so many books. Uh, he lived, he was, he died in his sixties. He didn't live super long. Um, and, uh, I was reading a, a book about him recently and the last few years of his life, I mean, he was publishing five, six, seven books a year. I mean, he just like, he had all these ideas in him that he wanted to get out I think he's one of the smartest uh, thinkers of the 20th century, yeah. uh, a great Christian uh, thinker, uh, incredible artist and creative and storyteller and just a great writer. And I've always loved the way he thinks about things. Mm. I think it'd be a great conversation. Fascinating. What's the best advice that, whether it was C.S. Lewis or anybody else, what's the best advice that you've ever received? I mean, it's it's kind of advice. It's um, I, I'd say there's two things. One, there's the psalm, as a man thinketh, so is he. Right? We talked about this a lot. As a man thinketh, so is he. Whatever you think you are, you tend to become. Uh, the best advice I got, you know, before all this stuff started happening, was a friend of mine, um, uh, writer and uh, blogger and entrepreneur, 
named Michael Hyatt. I'm sure you're familiar with him and, and mm-hmm. maybe some of your listeners are as well. I asked him that. We were driving through the mountains of Colorado. He was somebody I respected a lot. I had the uh, honor of driving him to the airport. And I basically said, you know, I see people succeed in their lives implode. They get too much money, too much fame, too quickly. You know, they they cheat on their wives, their husbands cheat on them, their marriages end, their kids don't know them. I don't, do I have like do I have to do that? Can I be successful and not have those things happen to me? How do you avoid that? He said, best thing I can tell you is find a group of friends who don't care who you are. They don't care how <laughs> famous you are or what you've accomplished and can love you for you and hold you accountable when the world thinks you're amazing and they can pick you up when everybody thinks you're nothing. Mm. And I, yeah, every week we get together with a group of friends and they kind of know that I like write books and play around on the <laughs> internet. But like, I have a group of friends that are not impressed by my success and it's a wonderful thing to have. I have a large group of friends who are completely <laughs> unimpressed by who I am. And most of them live in my house and I have the last name O'Leary, which, dude, amen. I, I love it. I think it's great. What, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Start blogging. <laughs> I wish I started blogging sooner. I know it sounds, you know, maybe silly, but it's been such an instrumental move uh, in my career. Uh, the other thing I would say on, like, the personal side is go to counseling. It's, uh, it's the it's the best gift that I've given myself is, is the gift of self-awareness. Um, we are so afraid to face the truth about ourselves because we think it's ugly. And, and as a result, I mean, like people see our stuff, John, you know that like people see our ugliness. We're not hiding it. Uh, but if we can become aware of it, we can work on it. And I wish I wish at 20 years old, I would have started going in counseling. I, I'm a, a big fan of it. I think of it like going to the doctor. Nothing has to be wrong for you to go there. You just check in and make sure you're doing okay. Yes. And, and, and just like you would do a physical, I think it's good to make sure you're working on your mental and emotional health. And I go every week. It's wonderful. Jeff Goins, it has been said, my friend, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. You're a writer. You have written many, 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 many sentences, many paragraphs, many books. But how would you want your one sentence to read. I feel like I have to like offer a prelude to this. Maybe this is, you know, antithetical to the question, but anyway, yeah, this is totally cheating. I'm just going to kind of call this. I will delete <laughs> it. We'll delete it in the post-production. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as a writer, I feel the tension between capturing moments and living them. And, and I don't like, it's frustrating. I don't know what the right move to do is because sitting in an office writing a book for 11 months, like I did with the last book, uh, removed me from experiencing certain parts of life. Like it's mutually exclusive that you get to live something and write about it. Like they don't happen at the same time typically. Uh, and so it's, it's confusing for me to how, to how to navigate that. But at the end of the day, like I want the life to inspire the writing and I want the writing to inspire more living. And so I, I would love for my sentence to be, he lived a life worth writing about. <laughs> Jeff Goins, the tension in your life has been lived well, man. You you have indeed lived a life worthy of being written about, worthy of being podcasted about, and worthy of being celebrated today. So thank you for spending some of your day with us. Totally my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for your message, John. It's a gift to a lot of people, and I appreciate you including me in it. My friends, that was Jeff Goins. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. 
Well, my friends, whether you are creative or you are uh, just alive, what a great reminder that we have dreams within us, that we are called for more, that that tension should not be something that drives us mad, but should be something that inspires us to move forward, to live our best lives going forward. Jeff was a delight to be on our show, but I I think his vulnerability of sharing conversion stories, of sharing the ups and downs, of sharing the roller coaster ride that all of us are on every day of our lives and, and how ultimately it ends with our hands in the air celebrating the grandeur that is our life. Don't wait for it. Uh, start living that aspect of your journey today. If you want to learn more about Jeff Goins, you want to learn more about our podcast, you want to share this story through social media, Facebook, whatever it may be, visit us, hang out with us online at johnolearyinspires.com. My friends, I love you. I'm grateful for your participation. I'm grateful you're part of our community, and I'm grateful that you believe like I do that the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired.